This episode is brought to you by Milne Feeds. Milne Feeds have been the leading provider of livestock feed in WA for over 100 years and is now proudly servicing the NT2. Their early weaner product is a nutritionally balanced pellet for feeding to pastoral calves and young weaners and has been developed with their high fibre technology to reduce the risk of acidosis. Milne Feeds also have a range of products available for beef and dairy cattle, sheep and horses. Find out more at milne.com.au. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Do you remember that old nursery rhyme from primary school that goes along the lines of first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes baby in a baby carriage? Well, that was pretty much the order of things for Hayley Price. In just over 12 months, she met and married the man of her dreams, falling pregnant just before their wedding. But during her pregnancy, Hayley was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma and ended up in a hospital 600 kilometres from home for over six months. That wasn't a part of the plan at all. In this episode, Hayley shares the story of the best and worst year of her life and what she's learnt from it. To start, I asked her to tell me the story of how her and her husband Jesse met. I guess how it first ticked over kind of thing, uh, another person in the area, he, um, him and his wife, I came quite close to them and they were like another family to me because all my family's in New South Wales. So I didn't kind of, I didn't have anyone. So they brought me in, I guess. And they're like, you know, there, there's this single guy in the area. He's, you know, he's a really good fella and all this. And I'm like, oh, whatever. And they're like, I'll give you his number. You should message him. I'm like, no, embarrassing. Anyway, I, yep, he gave me his number and I did. I messaged him. <laughs> hi, my name's Haley. You know, I've never done this before, but you know, hi, kind of thing. And he, he did, he replied and he was like, hi, you know, I'm Jesse, blah, blah, blah. Um, oh, I don't know how he got my number. Like the person who, cause I, yeah, dubbed him in. <laughs> for giving me his number. And then I was like, yeah, who knows with this person? <laughs> then I never heard back from him. I was like, cut. But <laughs> yeah, funnily enough, it ended up being that. So I think there was like a Monday or a Tuesday start of the week. And then the Sunday we ended up at the exact same second birthday party. Yeah. We met there obviously. Like officially met, you know, we talked a little bit. Somehow we ended up seated next to each other. I don't know if 
some of the others were like strategically doing that or it was just he ended up next to me because that was the only empty seat. But hey, let's just roll with it. And when I got back that afternoon, back to where I was living, up at the school there, um, I messaged him and I was like, oh, you know, really nice to meet you today. And then from then on, we were just glued. Oh, wow. I had no idea, actually. And I just love that you, like, messaged him, he replied, and then nothing. Like, Yeah. And, you know, you've, you've met him now yourself, and it's it's a him thing, isn't it? Yeah. Like, his shyness, because he is. He is very shy. And, yeah, it's just a him. He just, yeah, proper freaked out. <laughs> now, I understand you guys had a bit of a whirlwind romance, so tell me about that. We were engaged after just six months of being together, which was in December 2017. And then we were married in September 2018. We got married at Paradise Lagoons in Rocky. I, um, I just had to get married there for some reason. I don't know what it was, but there was something about that place that just drew me there. Everyone go and stalk Hayley's Instagram for her wedding photos. Like, you might have to do a bit of a deep dive, but they are well worth it. She looks so shy when I've just said that. I'm like, come on, you know how good you look in those photos. Oh, stop it. (laughs) And you got an extra wedding present? I did. In that week leading up to the wedding, we actually found out that I was pregnant with our daughter. Wow. So, in the space of... Not even a year and a half, so just over a year, you met the man of your dreams, fell in love, got engaged, got married, and found out you were expecting your first child. Yeah. Like, and then, and as we just said, yeah, in the space of just over a year, so a bit of a whirlwind of all these happy and joyous occasions. Yeah. You must have been on a bit of a high. Yeah, they, well, they are. All of those events are big highs in anybody's life, really. And it was, we were, Living on a high, I guess you would say. But that was all about to change, you know, just a few months later. So, in March 2019, I I had like what I thought was just swollen glands. And I was like, oh, you know, my body must be just fighting something. I'm pregnant. It's not like they can give me anything anyway. So, I was like, righto, just put up with it for a little bit. And then I think it was maybe a couple of weeks after that. Or maybe no, probably actually it was probably before that. Yeah, it would have been February when it first started. And I was like, mm. I went to the doctor because one of them ended up going hard. And I was like, ooh, your lymphs don't go hard, do they? So I went to the doctors and he kind of was, I I didn't know how to read him. He was, he's actually a really hard man to read, but he kind of seemed a bit panicked and I was like, what, what are you going on about? So then he sent me to Mackay for scans and stuff. And yeah, I had like heaps of solen glands, like all through my neck. That must have been, oh yeah, I can't even imagine. Yeah. It wouldn't have made things easier if you thought it was a doctor, you know, they're supposed to kind of be there to reassure you and comfort you. And if you're there, just be like, I'm not really picking up what you're putting down. Like, should I be worried? Should I not be worried? And and that's what it was like. I had an ultrasound on my neck and then they did a fine needle aspiration and they were all kind of 
they just weren't, they didn't seem really chilled and relaxed. Like, you know, everything's okay. Even though they were trying to, it's like they were trying to put it on. I, yeah, I was, I was really nervous. What came of those aspirations? Did they, like, how long did you have to wait for results? I actually can't quite remember how long I had to wait for them, but the answers that came back with them was actually nothing in the sense of they didn't end up taking enough for them to be able to test to get a diagnosis. And, yeah. So were you just kind of told, we haven't found anything, you're okay, go on your way pretty much? Well, uh, he also ordered a heap of blood tests as well and – it was just before I was going down south for my last trip down to New South Wales to see my family before my daughter was born and everything because I was having a bit of a baby shower kind of thing down there with my family because and my friends from there because, you know, I don't have the family up here and I didn't want them to have to miss out on such an important milestone, I guess, for me. And when I was leaving to, I was in the car. The doctor didn't want me to go down there, actually. (laughs) He was like, you know, you should stay. Even though he couldn't give me any answers. I'm like, well, you're not giving me any clear answers to why I have to stay. So I'm, I'm going. And I was only gone for five days or something. Like it wasn't a huge chunk but yeah I was adamant I was going to spend that time with my family and while I was down there he wanted me to go to the doctor go to the nearest doctor for them to then read me the results and they read all the results and I can't remember exactly what they all said but you know because a lot went on at this time so yeah, on the way home, I ended up getting those all those tests sent through to my baby doctor because I was thinking, well, why wouldn't I be sending all the information to the one doctor instead of having to deal with like two different doctors? So I sent it, yeah, I got it all sent to my baby doctor and, you know, went in and seen her and she seemed like really alarmed and she ordered a heap more blood tests and the results for them came back and she said, you need to go and see a hematologist straight away kind of thing. So we tried to book in in Mackay. She ordered an urgent appointment, but it had been two weeks and I still hadn't heard anything. And she was like, you know what? This isn't right. And they had actually had other scans because they thought Emmy was too small. Like they just thought she had stopped growing kind of thing, which – She hadn't, thank goodness. But when I had those next lot of scans to tell me that she um, was still actually growing, it was just her tummy that they thought was too small. She then rang Mackay, like the head of somebody there, I can't remember what it was called, who then said, no, you need to ring Dr. Watson in Townsville. She, you know, spoke to him on the phone while I was in there with her. And I was like, "Why, why is she ringing all these people? She got off the phone to him and pretty much said he needs you there within the next couple of days. You know, they're going to admit you because you'll get your results a lot quicker. Two days later, we uh, packed up and off to Townsville we went. 
How far away is Townsville from the cattle property that we're sitting on today, which is was your home at the time? Um, it's about six and a half hours, six, six and a half hours from here. And so you thought you were just going up there to get a few tests done, be admitted and then come home, come home to finish your pregnancy. Yeah, that's kind of how my GP was. Yeah, that's what you thought was going to happen. What ended up happening? So we were up there and they did their scan to check on M and they, you know, everything was fine with her, but they were really, really alarmed about all the lumps and all the, the blood tests. And obviously I'm, I'm no doctor, so I didn't understand how to read them or what they meant by half of them. It was all, you know, went over our heads. Because I was pregnant, they couldn't just put me straight in for a PET scan. Because that's what they wanted to do. But being pregnant, you can't, you can't, obviously can't have a PET scan because the radiation that they put in the um, cannula to get everything to light up and do its thing. And so they were doing all these uh, heaps of tests. Like I was poked and prodded so many times. I was sick of cannulas. I was like, stop stabbing me. <laughs> And um, eventually we ended up doing a biopsy of my neck. We did one, like, of the sorry, we did a biopsy of one of the lymph nodes in my neck. And the first one, turns out they didn't get enough of it either. So then I ended up having to have another one. So after two weeks of heaps of tests and not allowed to leave the hospital and this and that, I was, it was, oh, I can even, it was about six o'clock. Yep, it would have been about six o'clock on a Tuesday night. Like, I even remember that. I could hear all the doctors out, like a heap of doctors outside, like my room talking. And I was like, oh, Jesse, I wonder what's going on out there kind of thing. And next second, knock, knock on the door and they all came in and... Yeah, that's when I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. I just, I guess I want to leave that to sink in for a second for everyone listening. I've just got the biggest goosebumps all down my arms. You know, like, where do you go with something like this? You're not, you know, newly married, pregnant, not even been together two years, you know, like still very early on in a relationship and so far from home. I suppose. I mean, so you thought you were going out for a few days, but you, at that point you'd been there about two weeks when yeah. you got your diagnosis? Um, yep, yep, two weeks, yeah. And I can't, you know, as if that wouldn't be stressful enough, but you're so far from home and it's not just home that you need your neighbours to pop over and feed the dogs and the cat and throw some fish flakes in. Like you've got a lot of livestock and land that you're responsible for. Yep. There's so many things going on at once. I it, I know in my mind it's going to sound stupid to ask you, like, how did that feel? But how did that, you know, I don't even know if you can articulate it, but what was that moment It like? was. It was really surreal, to be honest. I'm, I'm sick, I have cancer kind of thing. And it it took me a couple of hours, really, for it to – to sink in that holy like I'm I've got cancer. What what now? 
you know. All I was worried about was, oh, my God, is my baby okay, really? I, I couldn't care about me. I didn't really. I didn't care about me. I was like, what about my baby? Is my baby okay? And she was fine. Don't get me wrong. Like, she was okay. But it still didn't stop me thinking of, you know, I've failed this. I've, you know, I haven't even been able to finish cooking my baby as such because they said they come in on that Tuesday night, as I said, and the next Monday they said she'll be, well, that same night she said, they said early next week we're delivering your baby. And so the night they gave me that diagnosis, I was 32 weeks and two days pregnant with Emmy and she was delivered at 33 and three. So is that, that's about two months early, just over two months early? No, just under. So she was what? So she was delivered at 33 and three and you're- Oh, and it's 40 weeks at yeah. seven. And, so yes, yeah, so sorry, just under two, two months preemie. Yeah. Yeah. And just, I guess, for everyone's reference, how old were you at the time? I was only 24. So I was, yes, quite young and- Fit, young, healthy. Yeah, exactly. Were you a healthy person? Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was unhealthy. I spoke to family members, you know, my aunties and that, and they were like, you were the least likely person that we thought would have been the one to end up with cancer in our family. And I was like, yeah, well, (laughs) I've got it, don't I? So how does that week play out between being told, you know, your diagnosis and PS, your baby's going to be here next week, even though you thought you had two months left and you were going to go home and finish doing all the things, you know, probably setting up a nursery or buying the things you needed to buy, going to more, you know, parenting classes, all that sort of things. And next minute it's, oh, well, no, you're here and your baby will be here in a week and you're not going anywhere anytime soon. Well, that's pretty much what they told me. You aren't going anywhere. And I was like, say what? Like, I, I can't go anywhere. But the next day I was talking to one of the nurses and she's like, just ask them again, you know, to see if you can go home for a couple of days. Cause I only had clothes. Jesse and I both, we only had clothes for a couple of days. And, you know, I was about to bring this baby into the world and I had nothing. Like I honestly, I had nothing for my baby. I had nothing for me. I had nothing, like Jesse had nothing. So she's like, you know, just ask them again. Can you do it? And I did. And yeah, they let me come home. I think it was for two nights, two or three nights I came home for. And then back up there, it was pretty much enough time to come home, pack what we thought we were going to need and off we went. How do you manage all of that during that time? You know, so much going on. I'm, I'm sure you were obviously like 
as you as you indicated earlier, naturally very worried about your child, and then there's got to on some level, of course, be worried about yourself and you know, you're, you know, you're being faced with your mortality and then you've got a, a new husband as well and the property and a job. And well, to be honest, I actually wasn't too worried about myself, which is really strange, but I, all I couldn't, all I could, I couldn't stop thinking about my baby and what if I'm not around? Well, I guess I was thinking of me, but I was like, what if I'm not around to be here to watch my child grow up? You know, what if this chemo kills me? What if this cancer ends up killing me? You know, the chemo doesn't work. And it. And I was also really, really worried about Jesse because he, the losses that he's had to experience in his life already, I just felt for him. I was like, look what I'm doing to him. Like, this isn't fair on him. And like I said, you know, I was worried about my baby and him. I didn't really think about me. I'm I'm just wondering if that's some sort of a coping mechanism to, you know, like you focus so much on on the other people and it also kind of speaks to the kind of person you are that, you know, giving and caring about other people so much that, you know, you put and – it, and it's such a mum thing and you were a mum at that time, you know, depending – you know, some people have different ideas on when people technically become a mother, but there's a baby inside of you, you're a mum. That just speaks to, you know, you putting everyone else ahead of you and worrying about everyone else and if everyone that's, you know, knows that is such a mum thing to do. Pretty much. I – um yeah, I probably would agree it was – I think it was my coping mechanism was, you know, I've got to get through this. I've got to be here to watch my little girl grow up. And that's just what I kept telling myself for the first few months of going through chemo and everything. So how do you go about remaining somewhat positive or, you know, just I suppose, and it's not even, I don't want to say remain positive, like, you know, making it sound like you've got to do positive thinking and affirmations and all that sort of stuff. But I suppose the alternative and on the flip side of that is that I can only imagine, you know, and I can only imagine that it would be so easy to fall in a heap and just be like, oh my God, what's happening? And just get so consumed in this and basically go down a rabbit hole because there's so much going on. And, and yeah, it's, you know, this is, I guess, the most extreme experience being faced with your own mortality. It's, it's not like losing a job, losing a house, losing, you know, whatever. Um, or anything else that could happen to you, but this is your life. So how do you, how did you get through those first few months of chemo the way that, you know, sort of like how you wrote about in your story that you, you, you did manage to remain fairly strong and, but how, how? I, I don't know, to be honest. I just kept saying to myself, you know, I can do this. I got to get through this for my little girl. And any tiny little positive that a doctor would give me or anything, I just, I grabbed hold of that positive and I ran with it. I didn't take on the negative stuff. I just was like, nah, but you said this positive. I'm going to run with that. And I just grabbed hold of all the positives to, yeah, help get me through it. Cause otherwise, yeah, I would have crashed and burned. How long after Emmy was delivered were you 
there to start chemo? So there was two weeks in between um, Emmy being delivered and me starting chemo. And at that time, were you still full-time in the hospital? Yep, yep. They, because they were still doing a heap of tests and all of that and I was having to, you know, go to Emmy and everything like that. So, um, yeah, I was still – it felt like I was in jail. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm just thinking so – I'm just trying to make sure I've got the timeline right in my head. You go up there for what you think is going to be a few days. Two weeks later, you're still there and you get a diagnosis of Hodgkin's lymphoma. Then a week after that, your baby is delivered – and two weeks after that, you start chemo. So within five, so five weeks after what you thought you're going to be for a few days, you're there with a newborn. But the five weeks is, well, it's a very short period of time. It's also a very long period of time. I'm guessing at some point, Jesse had to make the really long trip back home. You know, he had a job, he had a place to look after. How did you guys manage to balance that and try and work around that? Well, we were actually really, really lucky that Jesse's boss was so supportive. And was, you know, no, because Jesse had said, because Jesse's a very family comes first, like money's nothing. Like he didn't care about the job. If his boss fired him, he did not care. But we're really lucky his boss wasn't like that at all. Jesse said to him, you know, stop paying me. I've, I've got to be here with my family now. And Jesse's boss was like, well, no, I will. I'll keep paying you. And we were, we are so grateful for that. Because otherwise we would have had no life savings left, but you know we would have just kept going because we had a little girl to fight for. And um, but at yeah, so at times um throughout it, Jesse would come home throughout the um six months we were up there. He would come home because they had to you know truck cattle or process cattle and stuff like that. So he would come home for that and then we w- somebody would have to come and stay with me because I was not la- not allowed to be left by myself as part of the rules of the Leukemia Village in um, Townsville. Well, I think it must would be all Leukemia Villages just because of the fact of if you end up with that temperature, you need to get to hospital within that half an hour and – you, yeah, you need somebody. You need a carer as such. So, was that somebody when Jesse came back to the property on those times? Was there a stranger that stayed with you, or was it somebody that you knew? Well, funny you asked that question actually, because it was kind of both, but not. So, when I was in hospital, one of the midwives. It turns out we had actually grown up in the same town, and our dads knew each other. Wow. Yeah, so she kind of, you know, took me under her wing once we realised, oh, my God, our dads actually know each other. And she, yeah, took me under her wing and she came and um, she came and stayed with me there. And there was actually another lady who was there with her daughter. She was her daughter's carer. But when um, her daughter's husband was able to be there, she would come and stay with me while her husband, like her daughter's husband was with her. So she was, yeah, a stranger. She was just another lady in the village, like the leukemia village. We all just said the village. That was like, 
the lingo, I guess you would say. I think it's the epitome of, you know, that saying, it takes a village. Yeah. Like it literally took well, a village. Well, it did. To- and funnily enough, um, having a baby in that village, because obviously it was mainly, you know, elderly people in the village. And yeah, having that baby in the village, everyone loved it. Like if she was crying or whatever, they would all be like, oh, and I'm like, oh no, I'm so sorry, you know, but nah, they loved it. And we, um, we definitely made lifelong friends out of that village. There was a, um, a couple who were under us and yeah, they became, Sorry, there was a couple under us and beside us. Yeah. There was a couple under us and beside us who both became pretty much another set, well, an extra sets of grandparents for Emmy and Aww. parents for us in a way. They were um, amazing. And still to this day, we still keep in contact with them both, like both couples. And, yeah, it's we feel pretty – well, I do – I feel pretty lucky to have had them and the support that I had from them as well with even though they were fighting their own battles. That I didn't even think about that, you know, I had been thinking, Jesse, you know, you're so far away, six and a half hours from the property where you and Jesse live and work and that's your home and, you know, when Jesse has to go away, he's that far away. But I didn't even stop to think that your family is in a whole other state, you know, and this is 20 20- 18, this was happening. No, 2019. 2019. Okay, but still, so at least, thank God, it was pre-COVID. Yes, I know. Oh, my goodness. But did you – how was that for you and your family? Were they able to come up? Or I mean, that's a huge distance to cover. And So, Jesse's mum, my dad and my sister, my um, eldest – well, sorry, the one under me, they came up. So the day before Emmy was born, they all flew up because Jesse's mom's actually in New South Wales as well. So they all flew up on the Sunday and so they were there for the delivery of Emmy and just that little bit of support throughout that first week kind of thing. Yeah. And how long were you expecting to be in the hospital? Because obviously chemo isn't something that's sort of one and done and your family probably couldn't stay up there the whole time you were undergoing chemo. Well, no one was there. We actually had – it was just Jesse and I there when I first started chemo. So my dad and my sister, they came on, like I said, the Sunday and they left the Thursday because they had to get home. Brianna was still at school in year 12, so she had exams and stuff, so she had to get home. And, yeah, my dad had to get home for his business as well. But there wasn't really anything they could do. Like, yeah. they all wanted – and same with Jessie's mum. She was like, I feel so useless. And I'm like, well, there's there's nothing anyone can do right now. We just, we just got to play it out and take the good with the bad and roll with it. When you'd first been told that – you would need to deliver Emmy early and then start undergoing chemotherapy. What was that plan looking like? You know, what did they, you know, what was the picture they painted for you in terms of how long, how often, you know, did you have to be in town or could you go back and forth? How did that all, how was all that put to you? 
So they, yeah, they pretty much said, um, we're delivering your baby next week and then we're going to run a heat more test to find out exactly how fast spread it is so they could give me what stage. And, and once that was all, yeah, once they did that, they, I had stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. They ended up saying, because I had it in two of my organs as well, not just in my lymph nodes. They also then went, they actually, they actually came to me with a trial because there was a trial going on to do with one of the regimes of chemo for Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I was like, yes, sweet, I'll do it. Like I was happy to do it. I was happy to be that person on that one of the people on the trials. But, um, and yeah, they said it take, it'll take about three months and you have to stay here in Townsville the entire three months. You, you can't go home. So yeah, Emmy, I wasn't allowed to, you know, have my baby and take her home. I, I didn't get that. So I just want to ask, you know, and I know there's a valid reason, but I just want to, I guess, just in case there's any questions for people listening who can't ask you, obviously, because they'll be listening to this well after the time we've stopped talking. In an earlier episode, we had um, Jodie Grant on from Florina Station in the Catherine region, and she had cancer last year, different kind, of course. She was able to go to her local hospital to have chemo and come back to the station after after a pretty intense recovery period in hospital, but she was able to go back and forth. How come you weren't able to come home and just go back in for chemo days like Jodie could? So our local hospital, which is about 45, 50 minutes away, it isn't really fully set up, I would say, to have full-time, you know, have chemo there. You, It's just a small rural hospital. It, it doesn't do chemotherapy or anything like like that. But Mackay does, which is, you know, that two hours from us, but they only do certain types of chemo there. So the trial and everything that I was on, I had to be at I had to be in Townsville for it. And the other thing was um if when you're going through chemo, if you the second your temperature hits 38, that means there's an infection in your body somewhere and you need to get that special antibiotics into you within, I think it was half an hour, they said. So living uh, 45 minutes to 50 minutes away from the nearest hospital, there was no way I could get get there and... Well, even if you could, they weren't equipped. They probably... Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, yeah, I couldn't get there. But I, I can imagine that at least having some kind of timeline, you know, I think even though you're like, oh, three months, you've still got something to count down towards and you've got to finish, you can see the finish line, three months, whereas if you didn't know, then you, I mean, I think that for in any aspect of our lives for anything, when you, if there's something and you don't know when it's going to end, that's the, that can really mess with your head. So at least you sort of had a three months, I've just got to get through three months. Yeah, and I actually had this goal is we're going to be home by our first wedding anniversary. 
we are going to be home for our first wedding anniversary. One year of marriage, we made a baby, we had a baby and we kicked Cancer's ass and then it was only in the first year. That was the plan. Was. Yeah, like you said, it was the plan, but sadly it actually wasn't what ended up happening. So on my second day of chemo, I had my first day and everything was okay. And on the second day, I ended up actually having a severe anaphylactic reaction to one of the chemo drugs. So what what does that look like and what does that mean? When you say anaphylactic, I just think somebody's eating a peanut. Like I know that's a very basic way of saying it, but you're having so an allergic reaction to the drugs that are supposed to be saving your life. Exactly. Um, they were supposed to be saving my life, but they were trying to kill me instead. Pretty much I felt it the second that drug hit my system. I just like jumped up, like, well, sat up and I was like, whoa, my body, whole body just instantly started feeling warm. And then I kind of went a bit dizzy and kind of blacked out there a little bit. And then I opened my eyes and still a bit funny. And I kind of went out again. And then Jesse walked in and then I don't, I don't know how long all of this took because I was, yeah, I kept coming in and out. And every time I seemed to have come back to it, there was more and more people in the room every time. So this wasn't a mild allergic response where maybe you've got swollen eyes or puffy lips or, you know, something, you know, some people get maybe a bit of redness, like, you know, maybe when you get, when you're just mildly allergic to something, this was the other extreme. This was, you know, an episode, I suppose. It was. And throughout all of that, just the feeling of it all and, that coming in and out of consciousness and just the way I felt, I honestly thought I was going to die. I I didn't think I was going to make it. I don't even know what to ask you about this experience because I think some things must seem, you know, if I ask you what did that feel like, well, that just sounds silly to ask and, and how are you supposed to articulate that? But I suppose maybe I can ask once you realised you were going to live, how was that? And then I suppose the the flow-on effects of coming out of the other side of that, you know, that's got to have – you know, something that's still, I mean, we spoke briefly last night, something that still impacts you to this day. That feeling, honestly, is really hard to describe. I, it, uh, yeah, my words just don't want to work for me. I think everybody listening will more than understand. I, I just didn't know what to feel or what was going on because I was just coming in and out that quickly and like things were happening to me and there was just all these doctors and they were talking and then I remember (laughs) I remember waking up and I had the sorest leg like it felt like someone had corked me 
And I was like, what did you do to me? <laughs> and they're like, oh, that's from the adrenaline needle. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the adrenaline. And then once they said that, I was like, oh, I actually remember you saying now you're going to be putting a big needle. But it was just because I don't remember all of it because I was coming in and out that much. I Once I come all to it, once I come to it, like little bits all came back to me of what happened. And, yeah, it was a very scary experience. And for poor Jesse, like he had just come back down so he was upstairs in the special care nursery. He went up to feed Emmy and he just come back and walked into that happening. Like, how was that? Like that poor fella. It's a lot, a lot to, it's a lot. Yeah. And he was, just took everything in his stride. He just took it on and I've got to do this. I've got to. He went into just instant fight mode, really. I've got to support my family and I've got to do everything I can. And he did. How did that episode affect your treatment plan overall? Was there any damage that was sustained from from being going through that anaphylactic shock or, you know, did it affect your chemo going forward? Obviously, you couldn't have that same kind of chemo. Again, I'm guessing – no, so I was not allowed that drug again. So we just finished off that um, regime. So I had another two days of chemo after that, but they just took that one drug out of it because obviously, like, I couldn't have it. And, yeah, I was also told that you're now going to be here for six months, not three months so there goes my, yay, we're going to be home for our first wedding anniversary. And that's a lot, that's a significantly longer period of time than what you had initially expected. That's that's double. It is. Yeah, exactly. And six months, like it's, yeah, or oh, three months. Oh, it's only three months. But six months is just, as you said, it is a lot more. And six months of not being able to take my daughter home. Yes, that is a – I keep thinking I'm like, wow, there's, you know, this is awful, and then I realise I'm forgetting so many aspects of it which just make it worse. Um, but luckily you did have that leukaemia village and the support network there, which is, yeah, I suppose a blessing. But, I mean, six months, you know, Jesse couldn't – I'm guessing Jesse couldn't stay in Townsville for six months. Like that's just not sustainable to pull up for that long and – you know how kids, you know, after a couple of wet days in a row, they drive you nuts being stuck inside? <laughs> I think I know where this is going. <laughs> that was what it was like. <laughs> Jesse being, you know, stuck in town for six months. Yeah. I was going to kill him. <laughs> Not really, but he, um, yeah, he was just – because he, he's not somebody who sits still and having to sit still, yeah – well, I think anybody, I mean, even not obviously very much not the same situation, but when people have been put into mandatory quarantine or they've been lockdowns during this pandemic and people that are used to just, you know, going to work and doing work or not, and then all of a sudden it's like, well, no, you've just got to sit here and not do nothing, but you can't do what you're used to doing. And so that's that's him, but also being taken out of his environment and 
that would have been really difficult for both. Like, obviously, this is a difficult experience anyway, but. Yeah. Yeah, no, he. um, We all know farm blokes or, you know, cattle blokes will always have one one eye looking back at the property, wondering what's going on and how my animal's going. And, you know, they're trying to manage so many other things at once and. Yeah, it was. It was a lot like that. And, like, and every time he came home for that weekend or whatever, he would try and drive around or ride around on the entire place to see what's been going on because it, yeah, it was on his mind. Yeah. And that, again, that speaks to the kind of person Jesse is, is that, and, you know, like I think there's a lot of people like that in the industry. You said earlier he's, you know, family first, doesn't matter what's happening, I'm looking after my family. But at the same time, these are people who genuinely very much care about the livestock and the landscape that they've been entrusted to be custodians of. And, yeah, naturally he's going to be still, no matter no matter what, he's going to be thinking about that because that's his, you know, to some degree his responsibility. So six months in town, how do you – how does the countdown go when it goes from three months to six months? What do you, what do you do to get through that? Um, I guess my next thing was um, gonna be home. Got to be home by my birthday. That was my next thing. Yep, I'll be home for my birthday. It it did. Honestly, I did struggle there a little bit at first. I was like are you kidding me? Like six months, like that is such a long time. But then I went, you know what? We can do this. We'll be home for my birthday. The other thing is we kept um, looking at positives to what we could do when we get home. For instance, a big thing was Emmy's room. We hadn't even set it up yet. We, We didn't even have a cot yet. We had a bassinet. We, we actually had that, but we hadn't had a cot yet. We hadn't had a chest of drawers for her room. We, yeah, her room was still had half of the office in it. And we were just like, oh, we could do this in her room and we could do that. And we were just, yeah, we kept coming up with all of these little things. And I did have a little bit of fun on online shopping. <laughs> Let's be honest. <laughs> I can only imagine, and um, just referencing that episode with Jodie earlier, I know when I went to chemo with her, like that was there was a lot of online shopping while you're sitting there just trying to pass that time. So fair enough, girl. You do you. Like yeah. literally treat yourself because of what is, yeah. I did, even though I wasn't technically treating me, <laughs> but it felt like it. So, yeah, I did it. <laughs> that would have been good, like just getting those little dopamine hits of being like, you know, when you you like add add to cart and then check out and you get like your little e- email confirmation and your tracking number and you're like, oh yeah, this feels good. I yeah. think we all just love getting stuff in the mail, hey? Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> did you were you able to get? I guess you would have just got things directed to Townsville. Certain things like yeah, yeah. So yeah. certain things that I had ordered online that wanted right there and then as such. I would direct to there or I would send, like, a lot of stuff. Well, I didn't really buy that much for Emmy's room or anything, but I would – those kind of things I would get sent here. So, it was here when we got home so we could get in and get our room sorted. How long have you been back home now? 
October, yeah, October 2019, we came home. I I would have the exact date yeah. written somewhere, but yeah. So just over a year and a half. How has your life changed since then? Which again, sounds like a ridiculous question, but I've got to ask it. Well, it has really. If you think about it, like we left home without a child and we come home with one. So it, it did. It, it was completely different. Coming home wasn't just, yeah, coming home. It was completely different. But you left home not knowing you had cancer and you came home after six months of cancer treatment. Yeah. I came home and I was in remission. I was still quite tired coming home, to be honest. Like I was still pretty wrecked and I still needed a bit more healing time. My body just needed that bit longer time to heal. What kind of support did you receive or seek out in terms of like processing and coping with, you know, essentially the trauma that you've been through and, and you know, there's so much to unpack and to ha- have you even, I suppose, well, if I may ask yep. that. It's a very personal question. So that first probably two, three months, I just was like, nah, I can do this. But then just one day I was just that exhausted and it, Everything just came up. The walls were down. There was a flood of tears because I just, I had, I'd held it in for too long and I didn't let myself feel. I just kept trying to push through it and I needed to have let myself actually feel the emotions and what I was actually going through was pretty heavy. I just was like, oh, you know, there's worse, worse off than me out there. But no, what I was actually going through was hard. So once I had my big, you know, tears and everything, I ended up um, meeting up with a counsellor from Canteen. So, you know, Canteen? Yeah, we used to buy the bandanas for them, like to raise money, like yeah. teenagers with cancer. Yep, yep. Yeah. So the hospital connected me with a lady from Canteen and she ended up, I ended up seeing her probably fortnightly. Fortnightly or monthly? I think it was fortnightly. I would see her just to have that, just that debrief and get everything off my chest of how I was feeling. And what about once you came home? Did there, did you, have you continued support or? So she recommended that when I get home, I get in contact with a psychologist. So go to, you know, my GP to get a referral. And I did. I come home and ended up going to a psychologist and I was still talking for her with her for a little bit. But Canteen, the second I turned twenty six, they stopped. Oh. Yeah. So yeah. I sadly lost her in a way, but I still yeah, I've still got that psychologist in my car. That sort of leads me into one of the questions I tend to ask as we wrap up an episode, and that's, you know, in addition to what you've just spoken about, how do you look after yourself on a day-to-day basis and and more broadly? Seeing my psychologist is a big thing, but I'll be honest, lately I haven't. I just, now that I'm back at work, that two days a week, I just get busy and I forget about it. And to be honest, 
going back to work for those two days is a huge mental health relief for me in a way. It's getting away from the property, spending time with other adults, you know, not just my husband. And, you know, Emmy, when I first went back to work, she wasn't really talking. So, you know, you're having this conversation with somebody (laughs) who doesn't talk back to you. Like, if you don't say anything, that's I'm taking that as an agreement, okay? You're agreeing with everything I'm saying. (laughs) So, yeah, going back to work was a really big thing and I'm glad I did it because I needed it. I needed a bit of me back as such, even though I wasn't planning on going back I I needed it for my mental health state. And um, what else have I done? I try to exercise as much as I can. That's a lie, let's be <laughs> honest. Not as much as well, I can. Well, the intention's there. The intention's there. I try to get out, you, you know, at least have- a couple of times a week. And we do go into Middlemount to play touch once a week. So that's been a really good thing. But being social is a massive thing is probably one of the biggest things that has helped me get through it. I I'd just like to just jump back there for a second. Um, let's also remember you have a job, you're on a property that you assist with as well, and you have a two-year-old. So it, even all of those factors without cancer, like, you know, everyone struggles to fit in the amount of exercise that they want to do. So but I love that you go into play touch because that's like two birds, one, it was like three birds, one stone. You're getting off the property. You're being social with other people and you're being active. Like, and I just love when I, when people, you know, especially like you are remote, but you're close enough that you're able to do that to a town. Yeah. And that you're taking advantage of that and like the balance that must bring into your life. And yeah, it was a definite, um, must. So we, what started touch, the start of this year would have been actually when we started. Um, and I was glad we did because it, uh, to be honest, it, that being here all the time and all of that same, I went back to work this year as well, those two days a week. Um, it puts a lot of pressure on your marriage when you're in each other's pockets all day, every day, and both trying to process that traumatic time that you've just been through. Absolutely. I, I, yeah, I can only imagine, but. So when I first got home, I rested for so long and then I did. I really got into walking like every day and I felt so good. But then it got winter came and I was like, <laughs> it's too cold to get up early. It but is. it's not that I, you know, I chase after Emmy. Yes, I could be exercising a lot harder than probably what I do, but, you know, we do what we do. You do the best you can with what you've got at the time. Yeah. And we're all so hard on ourselves and I can just tell everyone listening right here, like you are being very hard on yourself right now because you're doing an awesome job. So thank you. And I'm the boss. This is my podcast. So what I say is final word. So I'm the boss and yes, what boss. I said is right. Okay. So <laughs> in the last couple of years, you have managed to fit an awful lot in moving, you know, up and down the country a few times, getting a job or a couple of different jobs meeting the love of your life, getting engaged, getting married, having a baby, having cancer, kicking cancer's ass. Like you've managed to do an awful lot. What is next on the cards for you? 
I um I'm still in a bit of limbo to be honest. I'm not quite sure, but I'm just about to invest in a careers coach to help me um work out exactly what my values are and what what it is that I'm here I'm here for as such. Like what is it that I want to do and where can I make a difference? That is so cool to hear. I had, I think, Danielle Hay in her episode mentioned that she had years ago done something similar. She'd gone to a careers counsellor in her, you know, her mid-20s and was like, you know, I've done this but I'm, I'm not sure what to do next and that really she had great things to say about it and I just love that you're like the accountability when somebody does something like you could easily be like, oh, I'm not really sure and just do this, do that. Well, you know, there's so many but you're like, well, that's so what proactive. Been, that's what I've been doing the last probably two years. I'm like, what am I doing? Like, oh. I and that's all I wanted. I wanted to be that wife and mother and that stay at home mom. And but there's there's something out there calling me as you, crazy as that sounds. I mean, I don't know if I've just watched too many movies, um, but or listened to too many TED talks or podcasts, but you. We often hear people say, like, you've had a basically a near-death experience and I, I, we see it all the time, whether it's in a fiction or a, or a non-fiction setting, that people come out of that going, well, I've got this second chance, what am I going to do with it? So I think it totally makes sense that you're... Exactly. I, um, to be honest, having that near-death experience at such a young age really went... Really woke me up to like, holy, life can be short. Like, you can be cut at any time. Stop just, stop just trying to work your ass off the entire time. You need to enjoy your life as well. We weren't put on this earth to flog ourselves and, you know, that hard that we're not actually enjoying our life at the same time. We need, to enjoy what we're doing because then we just turn into old grumps. And who wants to be an old grump? Isn't there enough old grumps around? Yeah, I mean, we're all going to get old no matter what. But do we want to be an old grump or an old delightful person? (laughs) Exactly. And honestly, old delightful people are so much easier to deal with than old grumps, let's be honest. Well, the old delightful people end up becoming like the, the awesome people you found in your village and, you know. Exactly. Yeah. That's, um, I'm really excited to hear that. And when you told me that yesterday, like, I mean, you'll remember I was so excited because it just shows so much initiative and accountability that you're like, you know what? I think I want to do something different. I'm not really sure. And rather than, you know, and, and you're just like, you know what? Well, I'm just going to see, I'm going to put my hand up, ask for help and, and you know, and you're 26 now, are you? I know, you're still so young. Bless you. Um, <laughs> and, and also I think it is, there's, you know, same with that. I think that's around the age that Danielle was when she did that, that, you know, everyone thinks, oh, I've got to come out of high school and know what I want to do with my life and that's it. And I go and do it and done and done. And now, you know, so it, it takes someone with confidence and courage to be like, you know what? I want to do something else. And yeah, I'm going to ask someone for help, even if I'm not in high school. And we're in the 21st century now. We can swap what we're doing. We don't have to be at the same job for our entire lives. We can. that. We can change careers. 
I love it. You're just giving me all the happy feels. <laughs> so to wrap up, um, I, as you would know from all the hundreds of episodes you've listened to, okay, we don't even have a hundred episodes, but remembering that you're telling me you've listened to a lot of yes, episodes, definitely. Uh, you would know that my final question is looking back on your journey so far or your story so far. And you're probably like one of the youngest people I've ever had on the podcast, actually. <laughs> little spring chicken. Um, So, you know, you clearly have a long, 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 long time left, but looking back on it just so far, and as we've established, you fit in a lot uh, so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson that you've learned? Gee, um, honestly, live your life the way you want to do it. Don't, don't hold back go for it. Life is too short. Like, I, as you said, I'm only young and I had that near-death experience and, yeah, you just need to get out there and enjoy yourself and fight for what you want. Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs including farm work, station work and agribusiness across Australia. View current jobs, advertise a position, or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au, where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station, and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations, and we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au, and we're also on Twitter at Central Station 6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.